1: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the collapse of the East Coast train franchise and whether Theresa May's latest custom union fudge will make any difference whatsoever. I'm delighted to be joined by our Whitehall editor James Blitz, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman, City Editor Jonathan Ford, and Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. The big domestic political news this week was the nationalisation of one of the UK's major railways. For the second time in a decade, the government has been forced to step in and take over the East Coast mainline after the private franchise fell apart. Back in 2009, it was National Express. This time, it was Virgin and Stagecoach who failed to make it work. Naturally, this has boosted the nationalisation arguments made by Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. So who is to blame? Is it the government, the Department for Transport, Chris Grayley or the whole franchising system? Miranda Green, this whole thing is pretty embarrassing for the government because it was only back in 2015 that the East Coast Railway went back into private hands under this partnership between Virgin and Stagecoach. And it lost £240 million last year, which for one of the major railways linking you know, London, Edinburgh, Newcastle, York, is really quite extraordinary here. And it's Pretty big embarrassment for Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary.
2: Well, it is, and not least because the whole saga of the privatised railway system in the UK is a very important sort of Conservative Party legacy because, of course, it was done as one of the last privatisations in the 90s under the John Major government. And Chris Grayling has now inherited all of the problems that are kind of inherent in the way that they privatised. I mean, it looks because it's actually taken a long time for him to come to this decision that he announced this week as if they looked very hard at other options and then sort of regrettably realised this was the only way to go with this particular franchise. But, of course, the important question is... In terms of the railway network, does this mean other franchises will now fail and be taken back? And in terms of the politics, it's yet another example of the Conservative government having to give a bit of ground, which looks like edging towards a Labour Party position, which they've previously attacked as extreme and socialist. And that actually, as we approach another general election, is going to be a problem for them across a whole bunch of domestic policy areas.
1: Jonathan Ford, Chris Crane didn't really have much choice, did he, when this thing came to a head? Because essentially, the Virgin Trains East Coast franchise wasn't making money, the figures weren't adding up, so he had to step in. And so for the next two years at least, it's going to be run by the government under the fancy new name, the London North Eastern Railway.
3: That's yeah, a very traditional ring. Well, I don't know. Well, there's sort of two ways of looking at this. You know, you can look at this in a very political way about what various people Corbyn wants and so forth, and whether nationalisation is on the agenda. But I would say this is a case of the kind of market, such as it is in railway services, working. That the reality here is that. Virgin and Stagecoach wildly overbid for this franchise and I believe if you want to throw some blame conceivably you could say that the Department for Transport might have been more sceptical about their bid than it was. But if you look back in time to whenever it was, 2013, 14, Richard Branson made an enormous fuss, if you remember, and uh, called out the Department for Transport when they gave the franchise for the West Coast to somebody else and he said he'd made a better bid. So he rather effectively cowed the regulator, if you like, into thinking that, you know, the highest bid, even if it wasn't a very plausible one, should prevail. Now he's been caught by the fact that he couldn't make the numbers that he put forward add up. I think, you know, the concern I had about this situation was that Grayling would do the worst thing, which is to somehow hand the contract back to Branson in some form, keep him in the game, even though he had failed to deliver on his promises. I think he's done the right thing in taking it back into this LNER situation. Because it's essentially
1: two ways the blame is going for this thing. So you can blame Virgin Trains for again doing what National Express did back in 2009 when it had to be nationalised again, which is to essentially put a massive bid in based on huge passenger numbers. They didn't materialise last time due to the financial crash amongst other things. This time they didn't materialise. Well, the economy's not going that quickly and also promised infrastructure upgrades have still yet to happen. And there's fingers being pointed at network for that as well. So the whole thing is really just a bit of a mess.
3: Well it is but I mean I think one can go too far with this upgrade. I know that it's been very helpful to Virgin Stagecoach to talk about this uh failure to upgrade the infrastructure. Let's look at this realistically. They put £250 million of capital into this venture. Why is it being handed back? Because they've lost the whole pot. They basically haven't got any money left and they're not putting any new capital in, so it has to go back. It has to be renegotiated because they won't effectively put any more capital behind the venture. The upgrade is clearly an issue and you can... i mean. My understanding is that some of these upgrades which were promised in 2020 by Network Rail are probably not going to (laughs) happen. They probably certainly aren't going to happen now. But there was a provision in the contract to deal with this which would have allowed them to claw back some of the premium they were going to pay to the government. In future years. So, Miranda, the
1: question now is will this railway ever go back into the private sector yet again? So, we've got the LNER, which is going to run it from the 24th of June. And Chris Grayling has said that this will be a temporary thing until this fancy new public private partnership franchising model. Now, if I've got this right, this could be the most significant shake up since the privatisation model began. Because, as you said, back in the early 90s, the whole idea was you had the track and the trains. And the services were all split up between different holders to try and create competition and all those nice conservative things. Um, <laughs> and the track is run by Network Rail, which you know, has its problems. A lot of it's very old and will need upgrade. There you have the services of people like Virgin East Coast, and then the trains, which are owned by various banks and then leased out to the services. This new partnership Chris Grayling is working on, essentially is going to create a joint management board between Network Rail and and the franchisee holders there is a greater link between the track and the services now. I know at Network Rail they're not entirely happy about this because this means they're going to shoulder even more of the burden for when things go wrong. But it could lead, in theory, to a slightly better and hopefully more realistic model for creating these franchises.
2: Well, I think it's interesting that uh, Network Rail are not that happy. Uh, clearly, those who sort of say it's not going far enough in terms of bringing everything back into state control sort of are talking about it being renationalising the risk while leaving the profitable part of the enterprise for the operating companies. But I mean, I do actually think it could be quite an interesting experiment. One of the key flaws with the original privatisation structure, or arguably was this idea that you didn't actually have competition between the rail operating companies on the lines, but you did split it up so that the operators had no real control over the infrastructure. So that sort of joint board idea is actually quite interesting. It could solve a lot of the problems which even the ministers who I interviewed recently for an FT film about this.
1: Which is excellent and our viewers should find on our website.
2: FT.com forward slash railways, very easy to find, not behind the paywall. And, you know, they even criticised it at the time and in fact Malcolm Rifkind who was transport secretary said he was, you know, locked in mortal combat with other departments, not least the Treasury and Number 10, over how it was actually going to be done. So I think the Grayling experiment, you know, is worth giving a fair wind because this idea of reuniting the train companies with the infrastructure is something that's been criticised ever since privatisation was rolled out. It doesn't solve, once again, <laughs> the Conservative Party's political problem with this whole issue because the Corbyn plan to renationalise wholesale is weirdly popular. And I say weirdly because it's even popular with the generations that can remember British rail. So it's not a case of young Corbynites being enthusiastic for something that was seen as a moribund national industry at the time. Even the older generations want to go back to it. So it's quite a difficult fix they're in on that.
1: Absolutely. It's about 60 or 70% of Britons would favour Nationalised Railway when you look at the polling. I think that support is actually slightly shallow when you look at it in the sense that it doesn't people think about the cost and who would do it and what have you. But and also, is it
2: a motivating factor when you go to the polls?
1: Exactly. I think not, but... Indeed. But I think Jonathan clearly this week has given a lot of fuel to Labour's arguments because their whole argument has been is that all these utilities, be it water, be it railways, they're all just natural monopolies that are ripping off the taxpayer and giving huge amounts of money to their shareholders and not actually benefiting ordinary people. And Andrew Adonis, the former transport secretary who nationalised the East Coast Railway himself back in 2007, he said that, you know, people don't really care who runs the trains. They just want them to run on time. And whether it's public or private, that doesn't matter.
3: I think of all the charges you could fling at Virgin and Stagecoach, the idea that they've taken huge dividends and profits out of this is the one that wouldn't stick. Um, They've made a serious loss. And the fact that they have um, surrendered the contract shows that there are private losses that can be made on the British Railroad. In terms of whether we should look at a kind of radical overhaul of ownership structures again, I am a little bit sceptical. One concern I have is that if you look at the idea of pushing together the rail and the track, what you inevitably end up with is a system, I think, where just paying possibly private operators to run services, i.e. actually literally just paying them to produce trains on platforms, rather than having them as risk-sharing partners. It seems to me that the issue there is, will they be incentivised to do anything other than take the fee? What we have at the moment is, for all the arguments that there's some enormous kind of pot of gold in the railways, you you do have a situation where I think some of the easy gains of train growth, passenger growth since privatisation, seem to be ebbing away. Do you really want a situation where just at that moment, when the public, perhaps because fares have gone up, are thinking twice about whether they want to on the railways, which you've spent a lot of money on. Do you want to take away that kind of incentive altogether to get the private sector to market, to try and innovate and come up with clever services to make people use this now much more invested system? I would say you want to be a little bit careful with just tearing it all up.
2: Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. I mean, you're right to remind people that not a lot of profit-taking was going on uh, on that particular East Coast line. But also... This idea that actually lots of the boost uh, in growth in rail travel has been demographic and it's been to do with the booming area in the southeast, people coming in and out of London. And a lot of it, as Seb said earlier, is to do with the health of the economy. Also, Seb, you kind of referred to this a bit earlier, the real competition for rail actually comes from other forms of transport. So if you're going to mess with the structures, you have to have those incentives in place to make it attractive. I mean, a lot of people's main complaint about the longer distance rail journeys in the UK seems to be that it's more comfortable and cheaper to fly. So you've got to try and solve some of that problem if you're going to mess with the
1: structures. And just finally, Miranda, that point about framing you mentioned at the beginning, I think this is a really significant one. It's one of our favourite podcast themes that we talk about here, this idea that you know the Conservatives have been in power for eight years now. And increasingly, they're going to be held to account for things they have done in office. They can't keep harping back to what Labour did in 2009 or 2010. And this virgin nationalisation is a precise example. Of that. It was the Conservative-led government's decision to privatise the railway again to do that contract. And they've messed it up. It was a different transport secretary, it was Patrick McLaughlin, who made that. But it's clearly their decision to go down this route. Chris Grayling going to try and make this argument of this new partnership, whether Jonathan says it's not actually going to make much, improve the situation, whether it does or it doesn't. But Are the public even listening to these sort of quite nuanced tweaking of the status quo? Because every time Jeremy Corbyn comes on with this clear, big argument, and you saw it this week, you know, John McDonnell was tweeting, saying, glad to see the Conservatives are finally coming on board with our agenda of taking back control of national assets and that sort of thing. And there's going to be a lot more of this between now and the next general election where people just go, you know what, this status quo isn't working. We need big change. And I guess, you know, ultimately, that was one of the big things of the Brexit vote.
2: It is a huge problem for them. The most obvious comparison, I think, is student finance because they've got a huge review going on and they'll have to tinker with the system that's become very unpopular. For example, the interest rate of over 6% at the moment on repayments. But again, that's an example of where it looks as if they're kind of hobbling one step towards a Labour position of complete abolition. I think the Tories have to be much more broad brush in their arguments rather than sort of saying the other team are crazy socialists and everything about their ideas are wrong, you have to go back to the core reason why you introduced a tuition fee system and why you indeed privatised the railways, which is to get it out of general taxation and get it out of the hands of the Treasury. And maybe if you remind people that you need more investment going in and this is the way to pay for it, because otherwise... As you quite rightly say, they just look as if they're kind of compromising with a Labour position, which allows the Corbyn leadership to argue that they're the ones with the ideas and they're the ones towards whom the political pendulum has swung decisively.
1: And finally, Jonathan, do you think this is the last railway that's going to be nationalised in the next couple of years?
3: Probably not. I think uh, there are a number of other franchises that, along with East Coast, overestimated what uh, can be achieved. My own view on this is that I'm quite sympathetic to the idea of having a situation where you have a, a national operator, if you like, as a backstop. It seems to be reasonably sensible. The private sector may or may not in future find every franchise attractive. You may have to look at different models. You may look at some you know, London Overground, which, as we know, has its own problems, because I think They've rather over in recent years and run up some debts, but that is a system where, effectively, train operators are just paid to turn up with coaches. And given that this is a huge commuter kind of network, maybe that works for them. Um, maybe there were others who will want to look at that. Maybe there are situations where lines are intrinsically not really profitable enough to be particularly appealing to the private sector. So I think you could see a more mix and match. And, and in many ways, if you think about the politics of this... Depoliticizing it by saying look we're just going to go with what works rather than appearing to be very ideological my worry about Chris Grayling was that he was going to kind of paint himself into a corner by insisting on handing it all back to Richard Branson and actually giving much more ammunition in my view to John McDonnell as just the friend of the billionaire not of the public mm-hmm.
1: Another week and another fudge on the customs union question. The cabinet met and failed once again to decide on its preferred option for the UK's customs arrangements with the EU after Brexit. But there was a glimmer of progress. Theresa May did convince her most hardline Brexit colleagues to a new backstop. This would essentially keep the UK in the customs union and aligned to the bloc's regulations beyond the transition period ending in 2021 it's not the government's preferred option but it does represent a little bit of progress while all the time more of britain's political capital is being wasted james blitz so we are slightly dancing on the head of a pin here and trying to look at some kind of progress because there's nothing really domestically happening in the uk everything is still all about brexit but there was this meeting and they did agree to something yes they did i think in it-
4: discussion like this we have got to be kind to ourselves and also as kind as we can to the listeners because it is complex. If you actually stand back and you look at the whole situation the UK faces right now it basically boils down to this. We're leaving in March 2019 the EU and we then have a transition period which keeps everything the same that goes on till December 2020. But the government is clearly wanting to implement a whole load of technology to create a smooth customs border across the island of Ireland and, generally speaking, at Dover between the UK and the EU. But what it's been told by HM Revenue and Customs, the tax authority in the UK, is that this technology is not going to be ready when we leave in December 2020. It is not going to be ready until around 2023, 2024. So they need some kind of bridge which is going to make everything smooth in that interim period. And what Mrs May has done is she's basically used this backstop on her insurance issue to try and get her round this problem. What she's basically saying is, in order to guarantee that there is a frictionless border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic in that gap... Between 2020 and 2023, I am going to keep the UK completely inside something like the current customs arrangement with the European Union. That's basically what she has done. But that
1: creates all kinds of problems. The key thing with this, Gideon Rackman, is the UK is still really talking to itself here and that, you know, whether it's on the preferred customs options, which is the new customs partnership or maximum facilitation we've talked about in the past on this podcast, the UK is really still just looking at what it wants. And with this new backstop James was just describing there, is there any sense Brussels is going to accept this? Because it does veer quite close to cherry picking, which the bloc has just said no to.
5: Yeah, no, I I think that is one of the the many dispiriting things about Brexit. It's it's one of the more dispiriting is that because the end state was left undefined in the referendum, all that discussion is taking place now. And Britain is negotiating, but it's negotiating with itself. I mean, essentially, the cabinet can't agree. And if the cabinet can't agree, how is the, the broader political community meant to agree? And then, as you say, there is this not kind of insignificant question of well this thing they may agree amongst themselves is there any chance that the Europeans will buy it and until it's defined one can't be sure but I think there'll certainly be considerable wariness in the the European side at some of the early signs we're hearing because if they say you know Britain's leaving the EU but it's remaining in complete alignment with the regulations well that immediately raises the question of free movement of people which the EU sees as inherent to the internal market. I think if the Brits buy free movement of people basically All the regulations, everything now, but we lose our vote and we continue to contribute vast sums of money to the EU. Why would they say no to that? But on the other hand, if we do attempt to cherry pick and say, "Okay, well, we're going to try and keep the goods flowing, but we're not going to keep people
1: flowing, I think they'll say no to that. Because I think this is why Theresa May proposed this idea. Because she, you know, we're going to have free movement of people until the end of the transition period, which a lot of sort of Brexit have been harumphing about. But the idea that would go on even further and possibly even into the next parliament, because don't forget, we'll be due in a general election in twenty twenty two. That would just be, I think, pretty unacceptable to a lot of people. So she's obviously going to try and say we want to have all these benefits, but not free movement of people.
5: Yeah, and I don't think she'll get that. And then I think that would then play to the anxieties amongst the hard Brexiters and may finally spark this hard Brexit revolt we've all been waiting for, which is that we're never really going to leave. And indeed, that they think, and I don't think they're totally wrong about this, incidentally, that the people who are currently posing as soft Brexiters are actually stop Brexiters. And their game I think is. think they're to, right. Yeah, exactly. They're right about that. And their game is to illustrate
1: that we've in a totally absurd situation I mean, or we might as well stay inside the EU. Um, and James, You know, it is just quite extraordinary that it's been 693 days since we voted to leave the EU and another 316 it's actually going to happen. And throughout this whole period, you know, Britain hasn't really gained anything or made any positions. And in retrospect, triggering Article 50 before defining amongst ourselves what that end state would be was a bit of a folly because I remember the political pressures back at the beginning of 2017 to get this thing triggered, to get moving. But there clearly should have been a much more comprehensive conversation. So when the UK went in, it knew exactly what it wanted to get out of this and where its red lines were because nearly every red line Theresa May has set out has been scotched or moved back in some form. That is
4: undeniably the case. I mean, I've thought all along that when the Chilcot-style inquiry is finally launched years from now, you think that's
1: going to happen? I think it
4: will happen one day. We'll, we'll finally look at where it all went wrong. It Would you will share like it, James, in, <laughs> in return for a knighthood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sir no, James the, Blitz. No, I take it all that is not going to stay in. Um... <laughs> oh, I think it has to. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, well, we'll see whether that happens or not. I've always thought that when people look back and say what went wrong, they will look at the series of mistakes that were made between the time Mrs. May became Prime Minister in July 2016 and the Conservative Party conference of October of that year. Because in that period, without any wider consultation, Mrs. May, first of all, committed to triggering Article 50 in the first quarter of 2017, um, without, as Gideon says, any real kind of working through of exactly what our position was. And secondly, she drew these very rigid red lines and the point is that the entire effort of the civil service since then has been to try and reconcile these very rigid positions that mrs may has taken on leaving the customs union leaving the single market leaving the purview of the european court of justice with the fact that britain needs in many respects to keep things the same in order to maintain our economic relationship with the eu and that's why we spend so much of our time, I think, trying to wrap our heads around these really complex compromises like customs partnership, maximum facilitation, the three baskets of the Mansion House speech, because in the end, that's the knot we've got into. We're trying to change everything so that it stays the same. It's intellectually
1: too much. And, you know, it's not just obviously this issue for the UK. It's been wider implications for the UK's position in the world because I think, you know, people look at this and there does seem to be this sense that, you know, having some kind of nervous breakdown or what kind of a kind of metaphor you want to use because, you know, Brexit is a completely acceptable thing that a country might do, but the way we've gone about it and all this time trying to work through these things, you know, I said, just over 300 days and we still have no idea what we want for our customs and trading relationships with our closest partner and other countries will look at this and just think what on earth is going on?
5: Yeah, I think they might to the extent they're paying any attention. I wouldn't overestimate the interest in Brexit now. I think, uh, you know... Most no- people have
1: accepted it and sort yeah, of just Yeah, I mean, I on. think there's
5: a general impression overseas it's clearly not going very well but that's about it. But a very interesting thing is The impact of the election of Donald Trump, which happened a few months after Brexit, and many people have always linked the two events, and indeed Trump did it. He talked about his election being the equivalent of Brexit. But weirdly, I think in some ways it's made Brexit harder because it makes the United States, which was the other great relationship the UK had, look much less reliable. Do you necessarily want to hurl yourself into the arms of Donald Trump's America as you... Uh, leave the European Union and some Brexiters might say yes to that but if you look at the way the British government is behaving say on the Iran thing and on uh, Trump's approach to trade it's much closer to the EU than to the US which puts them in a very weird position.
4: I think that's right I mean if I can just interrupt there, because I think on so many of the major foreign policy issues Britain is now much more closely aligned to France and Germany the Iran dossier the shift of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Um, Indeed, in, then it's in ever Israel. been. I
5: mean, the, the irony is that you know, in previous things, when we were our que- membership of the EU was not questioned, we were arguably you know America's kind of Trojan horse inside mm. the EU, say over Iraq. And now we're
4: much more closely aligned with the EU than with the US as we're leaving the EU. It makes no sense. The trouble is that although this is something that we discuss, it doesn't have any impact on the wider public. The central problem, I think, still with Brexit is that public opinion on Brexit hasn't shifted really that much since the... 2016 referendum and it seems to me that the public doesn't look on this enormous geopolitical shift and feel it has any impact on them. It it is in the end. I think one of the central problems in the UK is that we're still very much in a post-Iraq war syndrome in the UK where the public simply doesn't want to know any more about the world outside after Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya. These international issues just don't affect them in the way they
5: want. They're abstract and I think that what is required is some big event, an Iraq war style event that reshapes public opinion for a generation. But I fear that might be Brexit going very badly wrong rather than, say, a reassessment of Britain's position in the world, which is overdue, actually, given Trump, given what's happening in Russia, given the rise of China. There are all sorts of huge issues which actually are undermining the basic assumptions on which British foreign policy has been based and which don't necessarily lead you to the idea that Brexit's the logical conclusion.
1: I do wonder if that moment might actually be to do with Ireland because that's a bit closer to home Mm. and obviously the customs question that we've talked about a lot however that pans out is going to directly affect the future of Ireland and you know polling suggests that, you know, support for United Ireland is not really changed massively but demographic changes plus the potential for some new border beat in the Irish Sea or on the Irish border could be very significant. You know, I've spoken to people who have been along the border with Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic which is all held by Sinn Féin MPs and you do wonder if, if you do see United Ireland whether that might be a moment that sort of wakes people up to where Britain's role in the same way I think Scottish independence would have. You know,
5: I might be a bit out of touch. I don't I don't think
1: we're going to get there very quickly, not least because I'm not sure the
5: Irish want to United Ireland, the Southern Irish, you know, they can see the implications for them of having to take on this really difficult problem. But and I, my concern is actually that the way the Irish question is playing out will actually feed nationalism in the UK and feed the sort of sense that Europe is taking unfair advantage of this in alliance with the Irish that could just lead to a sort of digging into the heels on the British side.
1: And James, just very briefly, to bring it back home to a moment, the other thing we saw this week was some new people in the House of Lords, that uh, the House of Lords is a huge chamber, and we had the Burns report last year that said that all the parties need to work together to make the chamber smaller. Now, Conservatives would say, well, the chamber is very unbalanced, it's very much an anti-Brexit chamber, but on the other hand, it doesn't represent the Conservatives, so Theresa May has appointed some new Conservative peers, but it's not really going to stem all these defeats because there's been defeat after defeat after defeat on the Brexit legislation with a lot of Brexit saying we'd we a much bigger reform, scrap the Lords or what have you because it's out of touch with, not just with the government but also as you were saying before with public opinion.
4: Yeah I mean there's been a couple of things. One of them is that the EU withdrawal bill has come to the end of its passage in the Lords this week and the opposition peers including Conservative peers have inflicted 15 defeats on the government. It has been an unbelievably difficult time. I think there's a view among some of those rebels that actually they've gone a bit too far and that 15 amendments was a bit too much. Tactically, they would have been better to focus on fewer because they do give the impression that they want to just completely sink Brexit rather than forensically look at the legislation. So I think they may have gone too far. Um, Mrs May has now, as you say appointed 10 new Conservative peers, it's not going to make the blindest bit of difference to the situation in the House of Lords, where there's about 790 peers in all in the House of Lords, and the Conservatives have around 250, 260. So they are very, very heavily outnumbered anyway. This is not going to make any difference. And anyway, all the major votes have happened on the withdrawal bill. What it does do, as you say, is undermine a principle that was set out by Lord Burns in his report that the House of Lords, which is the second largest upper house in the world after the Chinese upper house, has got to reduce its numbers from the current 798 at least towards 600. It is absurdly overstaffed with peers and the trouble is unfortunately that the Prime Minister, by appointing these peers, and of course also Jeremy Corbyn, by also going ahead with his appointments, is working against the spirit of that. And this is just bad news for the House of Lords. It makes the House of Lords look bloated in inefficient, overstaffed and um, the controversy about House of
1: Lords reform is just going to go on and on. I absolutely agree with that. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to James, Gideon, Jonathan Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. If you haven't had enough of Brexit, don't forget to look at our latest Brexit Unspun podcast, where you can hear about Britain and the EU's row over Galileo. Our industry editor Peggy Hollinger and Space Expert Bledon-Bowen discuss why the satellite programme is such an important test case for future relations Between Britain and the bloc. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more